the National Archives podcast series, Big Ideas, exploring big historical data, investigating the language of women in Parliament since 1945, presented by Luke Blackhill. This talk was recorded on the 28th of June, 2016, at the National Archives, Kew. Okay, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for coming to my talk. So, um, yeah, so I'm going to um, be talking really, I suppose, about all these things. I mean, but principally, really, um, with some practical examples of how it is that historians, um, who have maybe been a little bit late to the party, I think, in many respects, when it comes to big data methodologies, and particularly text mining, which has, of course, become very popular in corpus linguistics and political science, can use these techniques to further their research. Um, one real problem that is really, I suppose, approaching um, and has been here for a long time now, in fact, as far as historians are concerned, is the so-called data deluge, which is to say um, that the amount of machine-readable textual sources which are being released, things like the Times Digital Archive, for example, um, the archives of various um, uh, newspapers, also um, Hansard Parliamentary Archives, 18th century collections online. I mean, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of which you'll be very familiar with, I'm sure, in many cases. The question mark with these sources is, um, while historians are using them, and they are tremendously popular, um, their primary uses are really for historians to be able, A, to access the data remotely, without actually physically coming into an archive, uh, but also to be able to search it as well. Now, as well as being potentially many, many, I suppose, benefits, of course, with, this, with having this extreme accessibility and searchability. There are also self-evident limitations as well to that kind of approach. Um, issues, for example, like um, confirmation bias, which is to say that you, know, you have a particular idea in mind, you search a source for it, and hey presto, you find some quotes which support that preconceived hypothesis. Now, of course, there are many problems with that. Um, the first is that you haven't actually obviously been reading as much of the text as you would otherwise do and been able to encounter contrary um, pieces of data data, contrary quotations, that might cause you to rethink uh, that hypothesis. Um, But also that you have no real way of being able to communicate, say, how often a particular idea appears. To be able to measure scope and typicality in and of itself is an interesting historical challenge. For example, in the study of election campaigning, one might want to analyse how often, say, conservative speakers talk about imperialism relative to liberals. You might be able to find many nice juicy quotations of conservative speakers talking about that, but that often isn't the most crucial question. Did they talk about it more often than liberal speakers? In what years did they talk about it more? Um, In what places did they talk about it more? So the fact that we have all this data enables us, I think, to begin to um, assess these kind of questions a little bit more holistically if we use certain digital techniques. For example, text mining. And this is primarily what I'm going to be talking about today. I'm going to be looking at how you can use, or how a historian can use various Um, pieces of software to be able to analyse, in this case, the language of women in Parliament. The language of women in Parliament, something like, or the amount of text that there is in the Hansard Parliamentary Corpus from 1945 is, I think, something around like 0.7 billion words. And so this is an absolutely enormous corpus of text that will be impossible to read, let alone analyse holistically um, uh, without these sorts of techniques. Now, explaining a little bit more about this. So, um, This is part of my research into um, using big historical data to understand the language of women in Parliament is linked to something called the Digging into Linked Parliamentary Data, or the DILAPAD project. Now, what this project really was all about was using the existing corpora of um, of the existing Hansard corpus um, of the UK House of Commons since 1801, but also the equivalent um, 
corpora from um, Canada and the Netherlands, Canadian House of Commons, um, and the Dutch Parliament, um, which I think exist around a similar kind of time frame, to be able to um, uh, launch various avenues of historical inquiry. Now, one of the things that the Digging into Link parliamentary data did was enhance this data. Obviously, it existed pretty much in just simply in, in raw form with some markup, but not markup for some important things. So what Digging into Parliamentary Data did um, is code the data by the gender of the speaker, so you can search between men and women, um, coded by the constituency of speakers, uh, you know, which obviously enables you to um, perform lots of interesting geographical analysis, coded by party, insofar as you can discern party, which is very stable in the 20th century, fairly stable in the late 19th century, and getting very, very fuzzy in the early 18th century, but nonetheless that is still there. And also another important factor as well, to code by whether an MP was a minister or by a backbencher, which is a very important um, thing to be able to um, uh, distinguish because it enables you to strip the um, uh, typical from the atypical. For example, when analysing women in Parliament in the 1980s, if you're not able to um, take out Margaret Thatcher, obviously you get very, very skewed readings because Margaret Thatcher being Prime Minister at that time produces a very, very large proportion of the overall word count for women MPs. So this um, uh, research that I'm going to be presenting to you today is focused on simply the British House of Commons and simply from 1945 to present. So this is really in comparison to the overall amount of data uh, that I could be looking at in this project, really in some respects the tip of the iceberg. But nonetheless, this is 0.7 billion words, which I believe would, I've got the um, uh, quotation here, assuming um, a a seven-hour day um, uh, and no breaks, this will take a researcher, yes, 8,602 working days to read in entirety. Although, you know, I'm I'm not sure how, uh, what state they'd be in after that, but we're we're assuming that they would be able to, um, uh, you know, to to process all this data, but that would be how long it would take simply to read. However, it's not really simply about time. It's also about the ability of machines to be able to analyse text, to look at text in ways that human researchers can't. They will offer some reflections about some of the differences between a human reader and a machine reader, even assuming the human reader had infinite time. And I think that's quite an interesting distinction, because it's very easy to say, oh, we don't have time to read it. Yes, that's true, but I think a more challenging argument is to look at even assuming that a human reader did have time, what are then the differences that a machine can then bring. Now, in terms of the actual data analysis that I'm about to show you in terms of um, the way in which this was actually performed, text mining really essentially, I suppose, at its most basic level is about counting words and establishing the semantic relationships between them. For example, looking at metrics of lexical attraction. So, for example, is it the case you know, when a certain word appears in the text um, uh, that it is semantically attracted to another word? Is it the case that... Um, for example, the, um, I don't know, mentions of the National Health Service are semantically attracted to socialism, for example. Is there a relationship between those two words which can be provable? Other ways in which you can use this kind of work is to empirically compare two texts. For example, one party versus another. The computer will be, then be able to highlight what the salient features are of Labour speeches versus Conservative speeches. And this then enables you to begin to make some interesting observations and conclusions. Some, of course, that you might not necessarily have earmarked for investigation in advance. You might find something strange that, I don't know, the Conservatives talk more about fish or something like that, you know, that you weren't necessarily intuitively interested in. OK, so beginning this analysis here of the language of women in Parliament, I think the thing that, you know, just to give, I suppose, some general sort of prefacing about why, why this is an interesting topic and why it is that we're interested in the differences between the language patterns of parliamentary speakers, I think that um, 
one of the real reasons I suppose historians would be interested in the period post-1945 is that we've got a lot of studies, impressionistic studies, of parliamentary rhetoric from the interwar period, for example those of Martin Pugh, Brian Harrison, Richard Toy, but we haven't really pushed this analysis into the post-war period, which is really left, I suppose, to the domain of the political sciences. And the political sciences are much, much more knowledgeable when it comes to using text mining than I think we are in the historical profession. Now, I think that there is obviously there's considerable interest in political science in particular in the differences between the contributions of women and male MPs in all countries, but you know, in, in the House of Commons also. And in particular, I suppose, whether the, the question of women's representation isn't simply a question of so-called descriptive representation, which is having more women MPs, you know, ideally 50% of the House of Commons, but more the question of what is called substantive representation, i.e., do women MPs talk about different things to men? Are there discernible differences in the language patterns of women? Obviously, if this can be demonstrated, if it can be demonstrated that there is a distinctly female language of politics, you know, then the arguments that, you know, that we often hear, I suppose, in the political world about affirmative action and so on and so forth, getting more women into Parliament, etc., develop a, a rather different dimension than if it is simply about equalising numbers for the pure goal of egalitarianism. Now, what do we, though, really mean by substantive representation? So, um, for Hannah Pitkin, who was very famous historian who wrote about um, representation. This means acting in the interests of the represented in a manner responsive to them, which in practice meant that female parliamentarians representing women's wishes, interests, welfare and issues, all of these terms being quite nebulous in many respects. More recently, this inevitably hard to pin down constellation has been understood as women's social perspective. Of course, there is inevitably a lot of argument on what this means, with feminist scholars on the left often citing issues like equal pay, abortion, discrimination as representing these women's issues. Others such as Margaret Thatcher, Betty Boothroyd and Anne Widdicombe saw the absence of a sharply articulated women's interest as representing evidence that women were being represented on an equal basis to men. However, it's fair to say that the vast majority of works emphasise gender difference more than similarity, and so argued that women have made a substantive difference. Indeed, historians suggest that women may have had little choice for much of the, um, certainly the interwar period, to act as gendered delegates. For Harrison, interwar female MPs were forced to occupy a separate metaphysical space, that is, concern themselves with different areas of policy, which in practice meant embracing social and welfare questions and avoiding foreign policy, economics and other so-called hard topics. Indeed, during a debate on widows' pensions in 1928, Ellen Wilkinson complained that being bombarded with letters from women left her little option but to act as the member for widows rather than the member for Middlesbrough. In the early post-war decades, Elizabeth Vallance similarly argued that women's problems and concerns were relegated to a kind of ghetto area and noted Herbert Morrison's advice to Leonard Jagger in 1953 that her maiden speech should stick to women's issues as well as the expectation that housewife MPs Jean Mann and Agnes Hardy should be interested in housekeeping and child welfare to the virtual exclusion of all else. In the last 30 years, however, historians and political scientists generally agree that this obligation has receded, with MPs representing women because they chose to. Vicky Randall's study of 1982, for example, argued that MPs had consistently represented traditional feminine concerns, such as health, welfare, education, consumer affairs, and actively introduced questions such as nursery school provision to Parliament, which were not taken seriously by male parliamentarians. 23 years later, in the preface to Women in Parliament, The New Suffragettes, Harriet Harman, a frontbencher and well-known feminist, remarked that she and other Labour women had been advised to steer clear of women's issues to avoid being pigeonholed, but she had deliberately rejected this advice because women still needed special attention to overcome systematic discrimination in many areas. 
So with this newly enriched Hansard, we can examine the historical data to see whether this supports the central feminist claim that there is a distinctly female language of politics, and thus that women MPs have represented women in the country in a way that men have not. We can also examine the impact of numbers and ask whether the increasing proportion of women in Parliament, most marked um, since the early 1990s, but particularly famously so since 1997, you would have noticed the so-called Blair Babe picture there of Tony Blair surrounded by the 101 Labour women who were elected in 1997, has had an actual effect. This also enables us to assess the popular critical mass theory, which is advocated by political scientists, which predicts that once a substantial female cohort, around 20%, exists in any legislature, women may be able to begin working together across party lines to promote certain women's issues in ways that wasn't previously possible when they were a small minority. We can also investigate whether it's true that the Labour Party have emphasised the substantive representation of women more than the Conservatives, due to their greater ideological affinity with feminism and so on and so forth, which is also a commonly made claim. So, on to the now analysis. Now, myself and colleagues have developed a mechanism really for examining the presence of women in a text. And this is when we get into the methodological nitty-gritty. Now, the most crude and stupid kind of way you can do things here, but at the same time potentially informative, is just count the word woman. Not very complicated. And look at it as a proportion of the overall speeches in each parliament. You can see each parliament here, here along the bottom, beginning with the 1945 to 50 parliament and ending with 2010 to 2014, which was when uh, the project was finished. And this is the overall um, uh, number of speeches, and I could go into the methodology of what what actually constitutes a speech as an unbroken series of words, and the number of those speeches that contain at least three mentions, and that is, again, a a metric that we spent some time deciding upon, of the word woman. This is speeches simply of of men and women. That is the measure there, woman one. Now, woman two is a little bit more, rather more holistic than woman one, um, which is a large number of words which is to say the words women, woman, female, widow, widows, mother, girl, wives, wife, sister, daughter, lady, ladies, etc. There are some other potential alterations there. For example, like right honourable lady, we excluded that because that simply goes up in proportion to the overall number of women in Parliament simply because it's a form of address. So there are quite a lot of methodological um, arguments about how to compute that measure. But woman too is all of those words, so it is a more holistic representation um, of all of this. Again, though, it doesn't really show us very much initially. And where we can simply see that the vacillation between Parliament to Parliament is probably only around 25%, and actually really remarkably constant. And we can see that between 1997 and 2010, where you have a pretty constant number of women MPs, it's really almost dead, dead level. Now, we get a lot closer, though, to to getting something interesting when we begin to look at per capita, if you like, amounts. So, according to, again, this measure, woman, woman two, that list of words... What about female versus male parliamentarians? So we've got the women here in grey in each parliament, the men here in black. As you can see, rather obviously, women talk a lot more about women than men. Now, this may simply be a statement of the obvious, but this had been something previously that had only just simply been asserted. So it is nice to have it illustrated with pleasing numerical clarity. It's around five times as often. Um, Other interesting things, I suppose, though, is that we can see that... Is it the case that women are more likely to talk about women more often than men in the later period when there were more women MPs? Is it true that this critical mass theory that we were talking about here you know, has enabled women to act as gender delegates to a greater extent? No, you see the opposite's true. 
um, you see, if anything, um, the discrepancy between women and men is actually largest in the 1950s up until the 1970s. And from the landmark 1997 election, where you have 120 women MPs elected and 101 Labour women, suddenly you've seen a really, really considerable fall off, which has you know, started to recover. Um, but actually, the distinction between women and men actually seems to have got less as more women have entered Parliament. Now, again, there are some reasons why we might speculate why that might be. But nonetheless, that contradicts, seemingly, um, uh, the finding there of critical mass. Incidentally, I should say that all of these um, metrics here exclude ministers. They only look at backbenchers. So there isn't a, a Thatcher effect here in the 1980s. You could, you could put ministers in there as well. We wanted, though, to look at underlying differences between typical backbench members rather than the fact that you happen to have a women prime minister in the 1980s, which obviously would skew the results, which we already know. So this tells us, I think, um, some quite interesting things. But also, I suppose, as well, it does also provide some prima facie corroboration to the central feminist claim that women representatives in almost any context are more likely than male colleagues to focus on women. Now, nonetheless, this is still an incredibly crude index of women's substantive representation. So can we add some context here? So I'm going to do just that. I'm going to now show you an analysis which explores where, whether there are systematic differences in the actual issues that female legislators rage, as indicated by patterns in their word choices. Now, this analysis is entirely empirical and doesn't use any predefined taxonomy which I've made up, which this, of course, does. All I'm doing here is using software to automatically compare all male MPs' speeches with all female MPs' speeches in an attempt to establish the vocabulary that women prioritised over time through automated content analysis. Simply the way of doing this is really to get these two texts plug them into a point-and-click software program and press some buttons, and it will show you the salient features of each text. So this is not a difficult comparison to make in terms of the actual technical operation of it. Now, in this analysis, I also control for party bias. Um, This is, of course, an issue because throughout most of the period, there are more Labour women MPs than there are Conservative MPs, and so you might just be seeing words that are more Labour words rather than the words for women. Control for that by assuming... Um, by looking only at words which emerged as markers of both conservative and labour female discourse. Now, this analysis I'm now going to show you, which has been generated for each of the... might be quite hard to read, but I'll I'll talk through it. Now, on the left-hand side, you've got words that women use significantly more often than men. On the right-hand side, words that men use significantly more often than women. The metrics here are the percentage of the 17 parliaments in this period um, uh, where the word is used significantly more often according to a threshold of, an established threshold of signif- statistical significance by women of both parties versus, and, and the, other one, the other one is for men of both parties. So we see, for example, with the word child there, which is in top position, that is used significantly more often by women MPs of both parties in every, all 17 parliaments. We also find some other words as well at the top, like women, that's understandable. Health, this becomes more interesting. You know, this is also there, and that's 16 out of 17 parliaments. On the other side, for the men, the men, um, interestingly, don't have such a strong set of gendered markers, but in 82% of the parliaments, argument is a popular male word, force is a male word, pro- um, pro- um, proposition, corporation, defence, army, nuclear. Uh, in a way, it, 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 is, quite, it is quite interesting um, that these um, do, uh, in fact, reaffirm some sharply gendered stereotypes. But we can say that, that there are two words, child and woman, which are used significantly more often by women in all 17, five that fit the description for 16 parliaments, eight that, descri- that fit that description for 15 parliaments. Now, amongst men, the only two words, argument and force, which appear significantly more often 
uh, in 14 parliaments, and there are none for 15 parliaments, none for 16, none for 17. This overall means that women have got 19 strong gender markers in the space where men have only got two. So there are 42 words which are used significantly more by women MPs and at least 65% of parliaments where there are only nine words that fit that description amongst men. So there is, if you like, a, a sort of a core set of words that much more mark women, more so than the case with men. In terms of the words themselves, they do come from certain domains. So with the women words, we've got, for example, the domain of family and children, family, husband, marriage, parent, child, baby and nursery, education, which is the word education, teacher, training and school, health, health clinic, nursing, doctor, patient, medical nurse, treatment, bed. In terms of men, you've got some interesting domains. One of them is about parliamentary debate itself and especially conflicts within it. Proposition, wrong, principle, doubt, party, argument, view and point. Military and vehicles, you probably noticed that, aircraft, ship, weapon, troop, military and defence. Business, corporation, business and expenditure. Foreign policy and geography, Germany, Americans, northern, international, foreign, western, and sea. But the interesting thing here is that we have an index of what you could call women's substantial representation, which has been empirically derived from the text. I.e. the computer has told us these words, and we've now managed to find these. So rather than simply looking at our own preconceptions, we've now got some kind of corroboration that these words, which appear so much more often amongst women than men, appear uh, across a large number of parliaments, but have also been shown to us by the software, rather than us going in there, I suppose, with our own preconceptions and try to look at things. Now... Next piece of analysis, parties against each other. One major conclusion um, is that, or one major belief, is that Labour will talk more about the language of women than the Conservatives. Now, if we see the first graph up the top here, um, Labour on the grey bar and Conservatives on the black bar, um, we see that this is generally true, generally true. There are relatively small um, leads for Labour in the 1960s and 70s, but Labour begins to open up much larger leads in the 1980s. That's amongst both sets of MPs. However, we then find, quite interestingly, that this is primarily because Labour, actually, most of their lead is derived from men rather than women. So we find that male Labour MPs versus male Conservative MPs register pretty consistent leads. The picture amongst women is much, much more varied. There are actually periods of time, for example... In, the, um, uh, in more recent parliaments, for example, 1997 um, uh, to 2014, and there in the 1960s and 70s, where women Conservative MPs are talking more about women um, uh, than um, Labour MPs. That is incidentally true for the women 2 metric, and also if you take all those words that I showed you there for women 3 and you compute the same data again, you get graphs which look very, very similar. I'm not sure that the party aspect of it is as great as we might see. It also suggests, furthermore, uh, or the last graph suggests when you saw that big tailing off of the language of women there post-1997, that 1997 may not be um, uh, this uh, a moment uh, of, say, unlocking greater representation for women may potentially represent the reverse. This may, of course, be this phenomenon that women from earlier parliaments, like in the 50s and 60s, felt that strong obligation, like we heard there with, um, with Lena Jagger at the start, to act as token women and not to deviate from topics that were more gendered um, and not to make speeches in those masculine policy areas. Maybe after 1997, with women parliamentarians becoming much more normalised, the, the role of a woman MP being something quite unremarkable, maybe, they were, maybe this removed the obligation to speak about women. Now, to get this idea of 
the concept of there being maybe a convergence in language patterns between um, male and female MPs um, that we might have observed from some of these graphs, we can look at another measure. Now, this is rather an abstract mathematical measure, which I did not create myself. It was created by my computational science colleague, um, but, but there we have it. Now, what essentially this line, these two lines, which are the mode and the medium, the red line at the bottom um, suggests a convergence towards no difference between male and female MPs, and this then shows the parliaments over time. The way in which that measure uh, is computed is to, to randomly select a female MP and to see if their vocabulary is more similar to another randomly selected female MP or a randomly selected male MP. That gives two similarity values, and we can note the difference between them and repeat this procedure automatically 10,000 times per parliament to get a robust random sample. This test has also been redone with another statistical metric called cosine similarity. But anyway, what do we actually see? Well, we see that the largest difference between male and female MPs is really in the 1950s, and again we see this big drop-off here in the 1997-2001 Parliament, where actually there's very little difference between male and female MPs in general. Now, it is true that even in these very distinct policy areas, like, for example, um, health and welfare, there are still large differences that are registered between men and women even in these parliaments, but amongst the great majority of other language on various other issues, the differences between men and women seems to, in fact, be falling away rather than becoming more sharply exaggerated. Now, the advantage of this method is that it is not deliberately focused on topics where female MPs have demonstrated greater difference to men. It just simply takes all topics um, and treats them equally, or all, da- all the words and treats them equally. So it doesn't, therefore, pigeonhole us into thinking only about women's issues or, you know, and in ways in which scholars have defined as being, say, important to the language of feminism and so on and so forth. But overall, based on that data, it seems fair to hypothesise that the advent of a more balanced House of Commons, you know, where women are making up 25 to 30% of the numbers, now I believe the number of women in Parliament is at 32%, that um, uh, the... Um, the differences between male and female parliamentarians in language patterns seems to be disappearing. So so this in and of itself, I think, is a fairly interesting conclusion. One other um, uh, thing I will just show you, just because it's interesting, it doesn't so much fit into the general analysis, is do women speak more than men in Parliament? So the speeches, the number of speeches that women make as a percentage of the overall number of speeches made in Parliament is in black, and the number of seats occupied by women is in grey. So we can see whether the number of um, uh, women outperform the number of seats. So we can see that, for example, here in the 1983 to 1987 Parliament, women, and this has got Margaret Thatcher included in it here, are greatly outperforming the number of MPs. For much of the period, um, there's not actually that much difference. But actually, again, since 1997, we see very interestingly um, uh, that women are speaking less often than men proportionally to their seats, the number of seats they occupy. Now, this could be a function of having more inexperienced women parliamentarians, because all inexperienced parliamentarians, people who are newly elected, um, are likely to speak less. Um, uh, but, you know, but nonetheless, we've also done some regression analyses here to disambiguate those, con- those things, um, and we found that there's actually um, the, 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 the these speaking differences are actually also sustained, even notwithstanding the inexperience of some Labour women members. I just wanted to, in closing, just offer a few more sort of general kind of points about why this sort of analysis is interesting, why I think it's valuable relative to more traditional sort of historical readings that go, that go beyond the often made argument that it's just impossible to read it all because there's just so much. Now, I think the first of these arguments is that the quantitative intuition of human beings who are manually reading a text, that is to say our estimation 
and our ability to estimate importance, frequency and significance across long texts, like multiple general election campaigns or a whole parliament of speeches, a whole volume of Hansard, can be flawed. Now, I've obviously given some um, examples uh, you know, of, of where historians' judgments uh, of quantity potentially were inaccurate, like, for example, like critical mass theory. But inevitably, it's the human tendency, when processing large amounts of text, to be drawn to the few exciting spots of colour on the canvas that are interesting or relevant to a preconceived area of interest, and to largely ignore the uninteresting sea of grey surrounding them. Now, this tendency perhaps inevitably causes us to overweigh the importance of material relevant to our chosen subject of study relative to other material which seems uninteresting or irrelevant. It is hard for the human mind to empirically keep track of multiple emerging patterns over a sustained reading, especially if those patterns had not been earmarked for investigation in advance. Indeed, the linguist J. Charles Alderson presented surveys and investigations where even the intuitive judgments of professional linguists did not reflect frequency counts particularly well or inspire confidence in word frequency judgments as surrogates for objective computerized frequency measures. Now, indeed, a lot has been written on the fallibility of human memory in the hard sciences. A recent article in Nature Reviews Neuroscience concerning illusion in stage magic found that watchers had particular difficulty noticing even quite substantial differences in background details which were not the primary focus of the magic trick. This is where you get the phenomenon of the invisible gorilla, which some of you may be familiar with. Or maybe um, another popular example is a few years ago, a drink-driving movie, um, in, in, you know, in the, the sort of movies that come on before you watch a film in the cinema, had um, basketball players basking, passing a ball between each other and said, how many passes did they make? And you count them, it were like 19. So very many people would get that there were 19 passes, but they wouldn't see that there was a moonwalking bear which appeared in the middle and did this sort of little dance. And this the being the point being that you know, you're, you're not expecting you know, the kid coming across the road and so you know, you're, you're, you're smash into it. But the, the principle is, is still nonetheless there. So this enables you to see the invisible gorilla a little bit more easily, I think, than you would otherwise do, even though gorillas were not represented in Parliament and still not, even even can have some arguments about whether they should be or not. Um, anyway, this moves the discussion on to the second argument, um, uh, that historians' practice of establishing typicality and significance through selected quotations can be improved through this kind of work. Now, I haven't shown you, I've shown you something much more purely quantitative here, but it's very easy to combine this kind of work with more kind of close readings. For example, reading the speeches of the women MPs, finding quotations, etc., in the same way as a traditional historian and combining these two things together. But the core thing is, is that it's difficult to believe in an abstract sense that any quote or selection of quotations could ever be entirely representative of a complex theme like feminism or imperialism or the National Health Service in such a huge text, even assuming the perfect judgment of a historian. And also, selected quotations only help us when we want to show something is in the source material. We very often want to show that something isn't in the source material or is seldom in the source material. It is possible to footnote presence, but not absence. To show dearth or paucity implicitly requires a mapping of the whole body of text, or at least a large representative portion of it, to make sense, which would then seemingly inevitably require some form of quantification. A corpus can help here. Overall, when assessing a huge text, we might well find a noteworthy undulation by qualitative means, but with no verifiable way of assessing its typicality, we cannot be entirely sure if we have discovered an anthill, a hummock, or a mountain. A corpus, I suggest, is one way we can begin to measure, even if imperfectly. Third point, verification. By footnoting what might be called a representative quotation or set of representative quotations, a historian invites us to investigate it and disagree with his or her interpretation as we see fit. But when the text is so large, like a whole election campaign, this becomes practically unfeasible. Even if we could do it, 
The only means of disagreement with the original selected quotation is by selected counter-quotation. The presentation of a Cox and a Bramley from a walled orchard tells us that both apples can be found within, but gives no indication of how many there might be, which is often the more crucial question. No doubt there are a number of instances of, I don't know, a particular Labour Labour woman MP talking about feminism. But is this something which can be seen as something significant relative to other women MPs or relative to men? Is it a significant trend, in other words, if it's only mentioned a couple of times in many speeches across thousands? Because this kind of work can enable us to communicate quantity much more clearly, it also therefore makes it more verifiable. Um, enables other people to go back to the text and disagree with it as they see fit. Now, the fourth potential benefit, which I think should be self-evident now, is not so much an improvement on what we do already, but it's a new opportunity, which is the ability to work more empirically. A computer can generate word frequency lists. It can generate league tables to share how often each word is used relative to other words. So it's possible for interesting trends that we hadn't earmarked for um, attention to advance um, uh, to, to, to appear. For example, in my um, research on election speeches, I found that election speakers in 1880 were much more likely to use the words gentleman and gentleman. Later on, it just simply became man and men. And that in and of itself, I think, suggests a quite subtle underlying linguistic change, which contemporaries may not very well have been aware of as they spoke. That when, obviously, the franchise was expanded, it became less appropriate to talk about gentlemen and gentlemen, and more appropriate to just, to just, to just talk about men in the sort of plain sense. So the corpus can illuminate these things, phenomena which might have been too subtle to have noticed in advance. So overall, and in conclusion, I've essentially shown you a succession of examples and tried to build up an argument between them through a purely quantitative means. haven't combined it with any qualitative research at all, although, of course, that, that can be done quite easily, and it's not difficult to see where that could, be, that could fit in. I wouldn't say that this is a better way of working, and it's definitely fraught with hazards, and in many respects, I, am its, I would like to think I'm its own harshest critic. I don't think it supplies better data, but it does supply different data to traditional historical research. I do also believe that much of the study of language should always be qualitative because there are undoubtedly dangers when this kind of work is done badly. I would go as far as to say much greater dangers when quantitative work is done badly than when qualitative work is done badly, but that's an interesting philosophical discussion. However, I would like to think that one of the strengths of the historical profession has always been that it is omnivorous rather than ideological with its methodology. And I believe that quantification, when used carefully, has the ability to more fully assess scope, typicality and power in the study of huge political texts and ultimately better understand them. But more broadly than that, I think that these techniques represent an interesting and potentially provocative methodological proposition which can contribute to the long dormant but now re-emerging debate on the place of computational analysis and the quantitative methodologies it facilitates in historical research. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.